We love our children, and most of the time we know better than anyone else what is best for them. But sometimes our children face challenges that require an expert's help and encouragement. Today's guest, Margaret Walsh, is a wonderful lady who loves helping special needs students to succeed. Welcome to Homeschooling Saints, the podcast that helps you create the homeschool you love for the people you love. Our host is Lisa Maladnik, a Catholic life coach, TV host, best-selling author, and an instructor at Homeschool Connections. Margaret Walsh is the founder and director at Secret Garden Educational Pathways, where she provides online homeschool and Catholic special education therapy and remediation. She started her journey by graduating with a bachelor's in liberal arts from Thomas Aquinas College. She trained and worked at Linda Mood Bell Learning Processes during her summers between college and then pursued further specialized training with Equipping Minds. She's a certified instructor of the Equipping Minds Therapy Program. To complete her education so she could help more students, she pursued and received an MS in special education. Margaret works constantly to provide the best help possible. She is a kind and understanding teacher, while at the same time encouraging high standards and loves to have fun with and see her students succeed. Margaret can be found at Secret Garden Educational Pathways, which is www.secretgardenep.com, and that's in our show notes. Margaret, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you so much for having me, Lisa. This is very exciting and hopefully informative for a lot of families out there who are facing those challenges that you mentioned at the beginning. Yeah, we were just talking about the need to to take a break. So we'll, we'll, t- we'll touch on that in a bit, but step us first, Margaret, into your homeschooling journey. What was that like and what made you be attracted to homeschooling? I was homeschooled my entire life. So that was a choice that my mom made when I was a kid. I didn't have much choice in that, um, but I am so thankful that she took me through the entire journey and put in so much sacrifice and effort to educate myself and my siblings the best way she thought was possible. Looking back at that education, it has completely equipped me to be the best person that I can. Obviously, different families find the best education in different places, but I think homeschooling is a truly unique opportunity for parents to be the primary educators and form their kids both academically and spiritually. So I think that's very important. And after graduating college and starting to work in the education field, I've seen so many benefits to being homeschooled, especially with families who have students with learning challenges. So that's been something that I I tell families time again, if you can homeschool, go ahead and try it because there are so many things that you can do naturally at home that in a school setting would be considered part of an IEP plan, an individualized education plan to make things easier for the student. But when you're working directly with your student at home, you are already doing that and you're working one-on-one for the most part with your student. And even if you have multiple students working at home, there are ways in which you can balance things and I don't know, homeschooling is is such a fruitful way for parents to, like I said, be the primary educators of their children in so many different ways and and reach them right where they need to be reached. So I I came from homeschooling and I am super happy to help any families who want to homeschool 
So that's a little bit about my background. And again, as an adult, I can step back and see the benefits of homeschooling. Whereas when I was a kid, I didn't always see that. <laughs> sure. So, right. Yeah. It's yeah. just what mom and dad are making you do. Yeah. But it's such a unique perspective that you have as an adult and as a professional entering into this environment with homeschoolers, because as homeschoolers, so many families pull their kids out of traditional schools because they're either gifted or they have developmental issues, challenges, or there's something else going on, whether it's autism or something else. Very often you also get kids that have learning challenges who are also gifted and you have uh, emotional and psychological issues that go along with some of those things. And, and being in that loving, natural environment can really be a place to accelerate the growth of children. That said, there's so many times when we do need some help. We aren't special ed trained ourselves, we know and love our children in a special way. So working with somebody like you then can really level up our game. So what drew you to that special needs focus? I did not ever envision myself working in education or with special needs, you know, and I, I actually envisioned myself being one of those fancy paralegals or something like that, that gets to wear the, the suit, the skirt suit and go in and with high heels. And anyway, that was my vision when I was a high schooler and early years of college. And then I was given the opportunity to work um, at Linda Mood Bell, where they do remediation. And I got to meet some of the amazing kids and it was phenomenal to see the growth that they could make and the confidence and the joy that you were able to at least help facilitate in their lives. And that was truly remarkable to me. And it's just phenomenal. And at a certain point, I also recognized that within the homeschooling community, there was no help. Um, within private schools, sometimes they can hire a special educator to come in and help with some of the students who need extra help. But with homeschoolers, again, I really wanted to give back to that community. And I saw that there was no one reaching out and helping them. There was also no one who shared the same faith and values. And especially when you're working with a student who has learning struggles, social, emotional struggles, you want them to be able to trust the individual a hundred percent. And because as soon as you build that trust, one of those barriers that they put up comes down. Um, so it's, it's like layers to an onion. One of them comes off. And then if you build the trust of the parents, you know, you can have a much better working relationship with them than if they feel like they can't trust you 100%. You might be a professional, but you don't share the same values. And when you're working with someone who has social, emotional, and spiritual levels to who they are, that is super important. And I remember just thinking, man, if I had a, a student who had special learning needs, I would not want to send them to a public or even a private clinic where it wasn't, you know, faith-based as well. So that is, that is some of the impetus behind me kind of getting involved with this. And then really, I think being called to do this, it wasn't a choice of mine. I was led into this and then I've kept going and God has blessed me every step of the way. It's just, it's been a phenomenal journey for myself. Um, and hopefully for the families who've been able to work with us too. So that's a little bit of the 
the journey that I've taken. And again, it wasn't my choice. It was God saying, you're going to go and do this and you're going to work with these individuals and the blessings that have come with that have been amazing. Wow. I want to hear about what you do, like more about what that actually looks like, but tell us just a little bit about what is the impact on parents and the family dynamic when they start to get this kind of support? It is, they start seeing changes within the family life. As long as the student puts in the effort, you do see changes with everything. And I'll go into a little bit more detail about what that looks like, but you start seeing changes within the social life. The students become more confident. They start participating in conversations. They laugh more. Um, I had a parent email me the other day and she said, you know, my son, I got him this book set that you recommended and he went down and he read all of them in one sitting. And she said, I was crying. It was amazing. So for a lot of families, they see growth, both with the confidence and with academics and the enjoyment of learning. Obviously, God gave us our eyes and our ears to learn about the world around us and to learn about him. So when you can help facilitate that learning process for the student, they start opening up, the family starts opening up, you have more joy in, in the household. Now, that doesn't mean it's easy every step of the way. Sometimes it's really challenging. You have to put in a lot of work. The family has to put in work. So it's not all roses all the time, but you know, when you work through things and you, you try to get to the root of things and what's going on actually help solve some of these struggles, then you see a completely different side of life that you didn't see before or you weren't experiencing before. And again, this is not the same for every single family, but for a lot of families, when, I, when they do write back, it's usually, this is what we're seeing at home. We never thought we'd see this, um, different things like that. And it can be small things like um, one of the parents that I spoke with, she emailed me and she said, my son has sat down to do a Lego set and he's actually able to build Legos. So it's, it's tiny things like that, that make a huge impact in their lives because these are basic things that their students weren't able to do before. Um, so just it's, it's little things and sometimes it's big things, but usually it's just little things, little changes that show them they can move forward as a student and as a family. Yeah, it's the little things sometimes, those, you know, what I like to call a micro shift that has ripples, right? Because it's their indications of a shift in the own the child's own mindset as far as possibilities. They're, they're being kind of unchained from previous limitations and starting to move into new spaces. And so they're thinking of themselves differently. And then, of course, and, and I'm sure you see this a lot with the feedback you get from the parents, the parents' expectations start to expand as well. Yep, absolutely. Students who they thought might not be able to go to college are considering it now. And other students who haven't made as much progress, you know, they're maybe considering vocational school or things. How do how do we bring more fulfillment to our students' life now that we know that they can participate more fully in that life? So it's it's really amazing to see. And it's Again, such a blessing to share this journey with the families, which not very many people are privileged to do. So it's, it's truly a privilege to work with these amazing families. I love the sense of calling that resonates in everything that you say, Margaret. It's really a beautiful thing and something that as a person of faith, you know, and everybody who's listening will appreciate. Describe what it is that you do in your work that helps them bridge that 
gap between where the child is and where the child can be. Absolutely. Most of what we do is termed remediation. It can also be termed education therapy. And usually when a student has a learning struggle, what the typical game plan is, is to accommodate their challenges. So if they can't do five pages of work, then they'll be given one page of work to do. So it's reducing the amount of work that they can do so they can actually complete at least some of it. What I do is the other side of that is looking at why can't the student do this amount of work? What is stopping the student from doing this? And then once you look at the specific learning challenges and each student is so different. So you can use different diagnostic labels for students, but you still need to gather so much information from the parents to figure out exactly what might be going on. And then you go in and you figure out what processes need to be strengthened and you use cognitive therapy to help them strengthen that. Um, You use different remediation techniques to target those specific areas to strengthen it. And the amazing thing is that the the thought process um, that Aristotle laid out in his De Anima is what I base a lot of my perspective on because you have a sensory input. You see something or you hear something whether you're reading it or listening to it um, or trying to do math. And then you have to translate that information to something immaterial and you have to process that immaterial information in your brain. And then once you process that in your brain, it gets sent to your soul where you have the final act of understanding. And the the parts that go wrong, so to speak, are the processes that happen in the brain. But the brain is also a part of our body. So there's so much ability to change that. And they're discovering this right now. They call it neuroplasticity, uh, where you know people who've been injured, they're finding they can build back some of those pathways. And it's very similar with students who start out with educational challenges or something happens in their life and then they start getting educational challenges. And so you can help them build back some of those abilities by stimulating and strengthening those different processes. And that can look very different for different students with dyslexia, it's a lot of multi-sensory word work where you're having them trace letters and say, so, so they're using their auditory, their visual, and their kinetic pathways to help imprint the information better on their mind. With other students with memory struggles, you use a lot of Socratic dialogue to say, well, what does this look like in the story? And tell me more about this character. And you draw it out of them. You're, you're basically being a little bit like Socrates and and really drawing out the information so they have to find it and complete the thought process the correct way. So and to some extent, you're guiding them through the correct thought process, and you're also stimulating those the particular processes they're struggling with so that everything hopefully works together at some point. And we've seen a lot of progress with many, many students to varying degrees, but I've seen, it's, it's been amazing seeing what what you can do with remediation and therapy to help the the mind grasp the content and connect with it better and more easily. Give us a layman's just brief explanation because I'm a little bit of a geek on neuroplasticity as a strengths coach. <laughs> you know, yes. that 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 beautiful flexibility of the brain. Could you explain it a little bit for us, Margaret? Yeah, absolutely. So I usually like to bring in an analogy. So if you break your ankle, you could go to the doctor and he'll say, here's some crutches, go walk with them. And you're, you, you're never going to be able to run, but go, you can, you can at least walk. And that's 
that's where you kind of consider a disability as the end of the road. But if you consider the disability as the beginning of a journey, it's more like the analogy of a doctor saying, okay, you broke your ankle, here are the crutches for a while, but go work with a physical therapist who's going to retrain how your ankles, you know, muscles and ligaments are going to work together again so that you can eventually run. So that's the analogy that I liken between accommodations versus therapy and remediations, very similar. You're retraining some of that. And it can be different processes like working memory. There are ways in which you can strengthen the working memory. There are different ways in which you can strengthen processing speed. And what you're doing is you're stimulating that process so that it has to start working again. So it's Again, it's, it's very much like exercising the muscle of your body where you're, you're asking the student to do something that is challenging for them, but you know that to some extent they can do it. And as long as you keep stimulating it, it will start to come back and work more efficiently. I don't know if that answered your question fully, but. Yeah, well, I mean, the, it, it absolutely does. It adds so many dimensions that I would not have thought about it as you know, from the physical sense of the brain, you mentioned that we're talking about an organ, the brain here, not just this idea of neurological pathways being kind of rerouted or strengthened in a particular, you know, what we're talking about stimulating processes, making them, activating them so that the brain responds and goes, oh, we're doing that now, you know, starting to form a new pathway. And (laughs) that was a funny sound effect that just came out of me. (laughs) Um, But anyway, the point being that that repetitive stimulation that you're so patiently doing, guiding with a student is actually helping to create new pathways in the brain. Yeah. Yeah. And I wouldn't necessarily say create new pathways, but taking the pathways that are in disuse and making them stronger because those pathways and connections are typically almost always there but the student isn't using them. So so students who have dyslexia, I'll just give you an example. They will memorize, like if they're in a school setting, they will hide themselves in the classroom by memorizing what the teacher reads so that when they are asked to read it, they'll, they'll have the memory of just what the word sounded like. So they'll just memorize it and read it versus actually trying to read the words themselves. So that's that's like an avoidance technique where you're using other strengths because certain pathways are weak. So then you have to kind of figure out, okay, what pathways are weak? Let's start forcing or encouraging the student to use those pathways. <laughs> and it's it's a give and take. Do things that are easy enough for them to feel a confidence they can do it, but then also challenge them so that there's work that you're getting done. So it's, it's really amazing. And it's, it's very, it's unique to each student. So dyslexia is one thing. Memory and comprehension issues are another. Um, ADHD and focus struggles are another. Executive function might be a combination of some of those. And again, you can use a diagnostic label when working with the student, but ultimately you have to figure out why is there this label? What's, what are the particular areas that are, you know, the problem areas? Let's see if we can increase these. And that doesn't just necessarily mean education therapy. I'm working alongside an occupational therapist and we have a nutritional therapist that's working with us because again, the brain is an organ and you need to support the whole person, not just the academic processes. And when I first started working in the clinic, there were only a couple ways in which the remediation was focused. And I saw that there was a lack in a holistic perspective of how to work 
educationally with the student, but then you also have to look at the whole person, which I, I think is a blessing being Catholic. You have to kind of step back and see this person that God has made who, you know, is a blessing to the family's life and to other people's lives that they touch. And you have to see how can I support the whole person, not just the academics. And again, that's another reason why it's, I, I think it's my, one of my callings to be a Catholic professional so that that understanding is there for the families. They can feel like they can relate and, and talk about things that they need to talk about. So just looking at all the different things. <laughs> so many Catholic values here, affirming the role of the parents as experts on their own children and the primary educators, looking at the whole person, the integrated, unique, and unrepeatable soul in front of you. And so combining parental knowledge and scientific diagnostic models and, and getting to know the child. And I must say, Margaret, I love there's a positivity and an, an excitement in you about their potential, which parents can really feel drained and burned out about at times because it's a tough struggle. Could you share any particular kind of cases or, or stories that might encourage parents who are struggling? Absolutely. And first of all, I would say that, you know, all the parents out there that are doing the work day in and day out, you are probably not seeing the progress because you're living with your student. It's like when, you know, you haven't seen a niece or a nephew for a while and they've grown like three inches and you're like, oh my goodness, you've grown so much. And yet, you know, the parents haven't seen that. So it's similar with what the parents are doing day in and day out. So don't think that your work at home is not doing anything. It is, but you might not be seeing it because you're there every day. It's similar with um, when I am working with students, sometimes I'll have to step back and say, okay, where do we start? Because it's hard to see some of that progress. But some of some of the things that we've seen is that students will come and they have they can't read at all and again this is more in the dyslexia field and then we get them to the point where they can read other students they will read something they'll the reading is fine but the other components of of the thought process are not working together either they don't understand the material or they can't abstract information and so we'll have students who will come who are very weak in those areas and we'll get them to the point where they can actually understand most of the content, come up with an overarching main idea for the topics and see the, the pieces in it. One student that we worked with, she had a really hard time with memory. She would read something and she'd even take tons of notes. And then when it came time to test, she couldn't remember it. She would get bad grades. And we worked with her. And then a month or two after we finished working, actually maybe it was six months, Anyway, sometime after we finished working, her mom wrote to me and said, she's reading encyclicals now and really enjoying oh. it. And that's, that's one, one example that was like, it blew my mind. I was like, I would never have expected her to do this. Other students, you know, they are struggling with math facts. They can't get any of the basics down, even if you're working with manipulatives every single day. And then all of a sudden it clicks. And there was one student where one day we were using playing cards. I just, I use, I like to use things that are not associated with education because when you take the association away and put it in a game, they do much better. So we were using playing cards and we just kept adding them all the way up to hundred and she did it in her head all the way up to hundred. And then I was like, let's see if she can subtract all the way down. And we went, we subtracted all the way down random cards, minus eight, minus two, minus 10. She went all the way down and I was like, wow, something's clicked and she's ready to take off on her own. And, and the family did. And so that's, those are a couple examples. Like I said, with dy dyslexia, we've had multiple students who have come to us, they can't read, 
or they stutter when they read, they trip over words, they're skipping lines. And there are just a few things you have to kind of realign and then they're ready to do stuff on their own. So some students, it takes a long amount of time, others short amount of time because each student's different and you really have to figure out what's going on. But it's truly amazing to be part of that journey with them. Oh my gosh. So everybody, you can find Margaret at secretgardenep.com and we'll have that in the show notes. What other resources would you like to recommend to families, Margaret? I definitely like to recommend looking into the nutritional component. That's not something I do. Like I said, we have a nutritionist um, or a nutritional counselor working with us, but look into that component because we're talking about the whole person. And something that I recommend to a lot of families, it's definitely a life change at the beginning. It's very challenging at the beginning, but it's definitely doable is a book called The Gut and Psychology Syndrome by Dr. Natasha Campbell McBride. Absolutely amazing book. It explores the connection between what we eat and she, she looks at the whole body, but it's specifically focused on the mind. So when you're looking at the whole person, you have to look at that. A couple other resources, I would say a couple areas that if families are hesitant to test or to get a whole diagnostic evaluation for their student, you have to look at the senses. So if a student is struggling to read, um, check their vision. So go to behavior optometrist. That doesn't necessarily mean that you have to do vision therapy, but go to behavior optometrist, see what they say, see if anything is going on with eyes. You can also look at the auditory um, track. And this, these are things that I don't do, um, but I recommend that families do because again, sometimes if a student can't read or if they're having symptoms that are similar to ADHD or they can hear you, but they're not listening. Like you say, I want you to do this, this, and this, and maybe they get the first step down. Or if when they were younger, they were missing certain sounds in their vocabulary, they couldn't mimic them, then go and see if there's any auditory processing disability, because those are a couple different areas that look at the senses, because if there's anything not working with the sensory connection to the mind, then you have to look at that first and then look at the educational component. So those are a couple different things I'd tell families to look at. The nutritional thing is really good. And then... I would say with regards to just family resources, see if you can find a good group to kind of plug into. I was just talking to a mom who was saying that finding a prayer buddy is really good. And again, families live all over the place. So I don't know who's where, but um, finding a good priest who you can um, sometimes consult with and talk to because Families will go to therapists and work with them through some of the social emotional things, but some of it's going to come down to the spiritual, um, both for the families and for their students. So if you can find a good priest who has a, even a basic knowledge of some of the struggles your student might be going through, I, I think bringing the faith into it as much as you can is really important because then you're, you're not just looking at the, the academics, not just one thing. You're looking at everything. And sometimes you need to hear what the spiritual perspective is. Um, so those are a couple of things I would recommend that families look at. And then I will come up with a different list of resources that I can send you. A really good resource that I can give you right now for families who are uncertain if their student has a struggle, but they want to kind of explore things to see if there is a potential because I know not all families do diagnostic testing, which is very long. 
and time consuming and often very costly is to go to a website called understood.org. They have great resources and articles. They're short, they're readable. It takes one minute to read them. It's, you're not slogging through, you know, um, very technical things. It's, it's very parent oriented and they have articles. Are you seeing this, this, and this in your student? If so, this might be what they're struggling with. So they have a lot of good articles that I will send to different families when we're trying to figure out what's going on. So I would definitely recommend them as a, a resource. And, and then, oh, it's called, I'm going to have to look it up. I think it's called Mindware. Okay. And you can always send me the link and I'll put it in the show notes too. Yes, they have a lot, like I was saying earlier, if you take out the educational component um, and change the association and use games and things that don't look like workbooks, that is really helpful. Bringing in games to the family structure, taking little breaks every so often is good. It is called Mindware and it has a lot of different really fun things. It has a special education section that breaks it up into the different skills that the students might need to build and it's all games. So that's an amazing resource. I don't often use that because I'm working so specifically with the students, but if the families are asking, where can we turn? Wonderful. Go to Mindware. And uh, th these are such great recommendations. Leave us to us just some final thoughts as parents are considering what to do for their special needs kids. Yeah, absolutely. First of all, like I said, I think it's great if families are homeschooling. If they're, you know, using a private school, that's also good. But just remember that you're you're doing the best you can for your student. You might not see the daily progress, but it is there. And even if things can get hard, your student is suffering with our Lord. You can suffer alongside with them and offer that up and turn it into something beautiful. And then if you, like I said, you're already doing so much of what the schools deem as individualized education plans. You're already doing the accommodations, working with your student one-on-one, -on -one, figuring out what their needs are on a daily basis. So you're already doing a huge component that the public school says, we're the only ones who can provide this. So don't feel like you're doing a disservice to your students. You're doing an amazing job. And then if you have questions, it's okay to reach out to a professional. That's something that I have encountered in the homeschooling world is that families are sometimes afraid to reach out either because there's pressure to put their students in, in the school, which don't let anyone push you around. You're the primary educator. You know your student and what they need. So don't let people push you around. If, if you do, then if they do, then reach out to homeschool legal defense. They're great. And then, so some parents are, are afraid because of that. Other families have been afraid to get a diagnosis for their student because they don't want a label for the rest of the life. But it's good to, if you feel like you're, at a loss and you don't know where to turn, it's good to reach out to someone just to kind of bounce things off of a professional to see if there's more that you could be doing at home. And if your student does get a diagnosis, you have to remember that it's not the end of the road. It's the beginning of a journey. It might look a little bit different than what you had envisioned before, but it's the beginning. You know what needs to be worked on. You can choose who you want to work with professionally. If your student gets a certain diagnosis, then you can choose, okay, I want to work with this speech therapist. 
not the speech therapist that's provided in the school, or I want to focus on speech therapy and nutritional therapy, or I want to focus on occupational therapy and music therapy for a while. You can choose the best approaches that your students need at this time from you know, your own parental knowledge and your love of your child. You're, you love them so much more than anyone who is not part of the family would love them. So you can see what they need, even if you might think that you're, you know, like you said, not professional, but if, if you're not a professional, you're doing everything you can and there, you can reach out to a professional and see if there's a different approach or more that you can do. So I would say, don't be afraid to reach out to people to ask for help, both spiritually and professionally so that you guys can keep doing the best for your students. Amen. Thank you. What an affirming voice you are out there for us, Margaret, and a great leader in this area. Just creating that holistic and gentle and in many ways common sense, but fueled by that sense of Catholic values. Everybody find Margaret at Secret Garden Educational Pathways, www.secretgardenep. Com. It's in our show notes along with understood.org. We'll also get the Homeschool Legal Defense Association on there and, uh, and MindWave as well. So we'll make sure that you have everything that was mentioned. So no worries if you're driving or walking the dog as you're listening to this. And uh, can't thank you enough, Margaret. Thank you for making the time. Of course. Thank you so much. And everybody, please stay tuned. We have our short feature coming right up. Hello, my homeschooling friend. I'm Celeste Behe, and this is the Homeschool Housefly. You know, Frankie the Housefly, who has been a fly on the wall during our 30 years of homeschooling, feels strongly that poetry should not be part of a homeschool curriculum. I believe that's because of a certain poem by Ogden Nash that goes, God in his wisdom made the fly and then forgot to tell us why. Hmm. Well, unlike Frankie, I believe that homeschoolers should teach poetry, the kind of poetry that portrays what is good and beautiful and true. Teaching poetry can accomplish several important objectives. Number one, it can encourage children to love what is good. Number two, help children to see the world through someone else's eyes, in this case, the eyes of a poet. And number three, provide a model of word patterns and sounds that are worth imitating. If you like the idea of teaching poetry but don't quite know how to do it, listen to the advice of Laura Berquist, who founded the Mother of Divine Grace homeschool curriculum. Berquist says that when your student is in grade K through 6, poetry study could mean reading a poem aloud and discussing it, then helping your student memorize the poem and write it in a personal poetry notebook. For the student in grade 7 through 9, Berquist recommends that the study of a poem include analysis and the exercise of turning a poem into prose. While the study of poetry in grade 10 through 12 should cover figures of speech in poetry, as well as poetry types and techniques. 
Now, if you're wondering why the method of poetry study varies between grades, it's because the method is geared to the student's intellectual development. Young children learn best through memorization, which strengthens imagination and observation. A student who is a little bit older is ready to analyze, and by analyzing, he hones his thinking skills. And a high schooler who has already been acquainted with different poems is able to recognize and appreciate the elements of poetry. Teaching poetry to our children can not only familiarize them with the power and beauty of language, but also help to form their souls. The soul that loves what is good and beautiful will also love what is true, including the truth of the gospel. And for Catholic homeschoolers, isn't that the ultimate goal? I'm Celeste Behe, and this is the Homeschool Housefly. That's our show for today. Our program is sponsored by homeschoolconnections.com, where you can get online courses for your grade school, middle school, and high school student. Learn from the experts and make your homeschooling easier. Be sure to leave a review and share this podcast with your friends. And we'll see you next time here on the Homeschooling Saints podcast.